Hey, I'm Esther. I support managers and leaders to create great environments for great work. I've spent the last four decades leading, living, and observing change in both large and small organizations. And hi, I'm Victor. I coach systems in Agile. And I work with organizations of different sizes, helping them deal with context-specific challenges. And welcome to The Law of Jam, a podcast for people who care about systems thinking, agile, leadership, and management. We are getting into season four now. Whoop, whoop. Yay. <laughs> this season is going to be about learning in organizations. A lot of coaching focuses on getting people to do things, but what coaching should be about, or at least a lot about it, is supporting people to learn things and not just predetermined learning objectives. People tend to have these certain assumptions about learning that you know, learning should happen in these formal settings, like training, or that we give people a book and they read and they study it, and that's when you learn things. But in our work and in organizations, teams, and really anyone who works in an organization, have the possibility of learning all the time. And today we want to share a little bit of theory and some practical ways that you can provoke learning for the teams that you work with and for yourself. So what is provoking learning? It's really not about poking at people or you know, deliberately making them angry or upset. It's really about creating an environment for exploration. So we're going to introduce you to Piaget's model, which is a theory of how people construct new knowledge. So I want to start with a story. Because I was introduced to this model of learning when I participated in problem-solving leadership, PSL, in the early 90s with Jerry and Danny Weinberg. This was unlike any training I'd been exposed to. Up until then, I had, you know, done all the, you know, pre-test, post-test, listen to this, take the quiz, PowerPoint slides, all of that really not very engaging training where you were trying to learn a specific thing. But this workshop was completely different. Danny and Jerry set up these various scenarios, which we would then do exercises or carry out a task or whatever it was, and then we would talk about it. And we would extract the learning from the experience. So I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that that workshop changed the trajectory of my career and my life, for that matter. It was just a very deep learning, and there was implicit knowledge that you only gain from experience and examining experience. So it was very different from the explicit knowledge that is easy to train that I had been exposed to before. And there weren't set learning objectives. There were areas to explore. But every single person gained unique insights that were applicable to their own situation. And many years later, Jerry and a bunch of other people and I invented the iConference, which was all of the sessions were experiential and they were half day. And we exposed a lot of other people to using simulations in experiential learning and exercises for learning. And I think that conference actually had something to do with the fact that there are so many trainers in the Agile space who use exercises and games in their training. I took that training to PSL with you as my teacher. I had attended, you talked about experiential, and I, I remember that before then I'd taken several experiential trainings, but I thought that yours was different hmm. because you built upon my previous experiences there's this interpretation, I think, about experiential that it has to be practical, but there's also the one where it builds upon my previous knowledge and makes it easy for me to apply and learn something that's relevant for me. And so I thought that that was really helpful. 
That's really interesting because people are always coming into something with existing knowledge, right? According to the social constructivist approach, we tend to sometimes think about trainings as in like we are a trainer and we're a teacher and we should give a didactic lecture and cover the subject matter. But if we're trying to help people learn, if we're trying to provoke learning in organizations, we need to instruct the role of a facilitator and help people get their own understanding of a content and build knowledge that's relevant to them. But let's get into the model. You talked about Piaget's models. Well, Piaget's model, and this was developed in the 30s, but it is still relevant, and actually more recent research confirms this, research in neuroscience. The idea is that a change in the environment can invite exploration and experimentation and examination. And that's the part called provocation. And that creates a state of disequilibration where people are kind of working with what they've already known, what their existing model of the world is, and this new idea or this new concept that they've been introduced to. And at that point, it can go either of two ways. Either they assimilate the new concept and kind of make it match what they knew before, or they accommodate it and add this new concept into their repertoire. It may eventually replace what they had done before. And people, you know, it's a process, so people kind of move between these two poles, and this is how they construct new knowledge. So I think this way of training does require some trust, more trust than you generally need if you're just doing a didactic training because people have to be willing to step into the efforts to provoke the learning, right? They need to have enough trust to engage in the exercise or the simulation or whatever it is. If they don't have some level of trust, they may feel like they're just being jerked around. You know, you're just putting us through this exercise to stress us out, or you're just putting us through this exercise to make us look stupid. So if you don't have at least some level of trust, I think it's hard to be successful with this sort of training. You also mentioned the neuroscientific part where it's not possible to learn complex topics. The brain can't generate new neural pathways that you talked about without that at least level of safety. Mm -hmm. It's hard to store memories. It's hard to access memories and experiences. And this doesn't mean that we should spend vast amounts of time on creating safety, but like learner safety is essential. Well, you have to spend enough time to have at least that level of safety. So the other thing I think is interesting about this model, because it's saying you have something going on in the environment that you then explore, that says to me that you can process any experience. You know, anything that happens can be processed in a way that people can construct new knowledge. And that's one of the things we do in PSL is we have the simulations and the exercises but occasionally something happens that is utterly unexpected, and then we process that. We explore what happened. So you can create the environment that will provoke learning, but you can also notice an environment where it's possible to do some exploration and construct new knowledge. And I think that's a really important thing for people who are coaches to pay attention to. And I don't think about that in the sort of teachable moment which I think sounds super patronizing, and it puts one person in a higher status, but you can explore any situation 
to find out what new knowledge you can construct from it. I think one important part here is the expectations from the people attending a training based on this type of thinking. People that are expecting a didactic lecture might be confused when you're asking them to think about things and how they relate to things and what would make sense to you in your context, what experiences do you have, because they're expecting a answer, like the correct answer. Mm -hmm. So it's really important to work with expectations here. Now, I, since you introduced this model to me, I introduce this type of thinking in the first session, either through an email sent out or in my first training session if I have a series of them. Because it really stops learning when they expect me to just hand out like Scrum is a process that does this or management, you're supposed to do one, two, three. Here are the four roles and here are the five ceremonies. So expectations of the learner is really important to calibrate as you're going into a training based on this type of thinking. Do you feel like you were calibrated to that when you came to PSL? I did not, but I had exposure to experiential workshops. So the only thing I knew about PSL was that you can't prepare for it. You don't know what's going to happen. We don't talk about it because that would ruin your experience. So people who had attended it, they said, just go there with an open mind. And so, yeah, I guess I was calibrated to some extent. Yeah. I think the other people that, or the other group that is sometimes useful to talk to them about what the expectations are, are people who are involved in learning and development. Because their model is that you will have X number of explicit objectives and you can measure the learner performance against those objectives. And that model does not include people are going to get some unique insights here that are personal to them and their context. And they may not recognize everything they've learned until a similar situation presents itself. And then they remember, oh, yeah, I had this experience and this is what the discussion was about. And so now I can see it in a different way. I'm thinking we should talk a little bit about assimilation and accommodation. Yeah. Yeah, I think we should. And we're also going to talk a little bit about how you in different stances can work with provoking learning and responding to when you get this assimilating responses or accommodating responses. But let's talk with assimilation. So one example of someone who's assimilating something is when they say, oh, it's just like. So the first time I encountered a Wang word processor, oh, it's just like a typewriter. Well, actually, no, it's not just like a typewriter. But when people say that, oh, it's just like, that's a sign that they're assimilating. They're translating this new concept into what they already know, which sort of limits the possibilities of their taking advantage of any new capabilities of a word processor in that example. So we hear this too when people say, oh, a scrum master is just like a project manager. And the recent hype around Clubhouse, I don't even want to say what it is because I'm going to be assimilating, but I heard some people say, oh, this is just like Ventrilo, the voice app. It's just like that, but you use profile pictures. And that's also a sign of not seeing the potential and not seeing what's novel about it. Yeah. So if you're in a workshop and you hear someone say, oh, it's just like and fill in the blank. That's a sign they're assimilating. And then you might ask them some questions. Well, so let's talk about that. You know, in what ways is it similar? And then you can maybe draw out some of the differences. We're going to talk about accommodation soon, but I have an example of when I assimilated. I was taking Virginia Satir training, 
And I had taken training in FIRO, which is modeled by psychologist Will Schutz. And I had taken that a few years earlier. And then I was taking Virginia Satir. And I couldn't differentiate between them because they were so similar. Like, oh. Really? (laughs) (laughs) So to me, it Hmm. was very similar. And, you know, I didn't get any quizzes, so I didn't fail any tests. But I had a really hard time separating because we were looking at people and looking at their needs and looking at their internal processes. And I was like, yeah, but they both do it. And they use this very similar language. So this was me assimilating. I was fitting the new to fit the old model. Yeah. But as an example of accommodation, then, you mentioned self-regulating as we move between the poles of assimilating and accommodating. Mm Mm-hmm. So now, many years later, I can't even remember how I was thinking about this. Like, they are so different. Like, they're completely different ways of looking at things. Yeah. So I have essentially replaced the old with the new by now. Yeah, so it is a process, and it doesn't always happen in a big spark of insight or a big flash of insight. Sometimes it happens over time. Another example of accommodation I see sometimes is around phones. So until I was in my 30s, a phone was this large squarish device that sat on a desk or it was attached to a wall. And there may still be people who have such phones, but most people who have phones have far more computing capability than the first computer I owned. But I still see people who just use it as a phone. So they've kind of assimilated the idea. However, I use my phone to organize my life and my calendar and my email and, you know, I make movies with it and I play games with it. So I've accommodated this new technology, not so new anymore, of a mobile phone. Right now, the way we're talking about this may make it sound like accommodating is the greater option of the two. But there are situations where you might not want to accommodate. Like if you attend training that you believe is completely wrong or situations where like this is not relevant, you might want to reject that. So we're not talking about one response being better than the other. You should strive to always accommodate everything you are exposed to. That's not what we're talking about here. Yeah, that's a really good point, Victor, because I've been exposed to some ideas that I think are absolutely odious and I do not want to accommodate them. They're, you know, in conflict with my values or they're harmful to other people. I run across advice about giving feedback that is just brutal and ineffective and inhumane, and I don't want to accommodate that. But as trainers, we can at least help people make this a conscious decision. I think that's a huge step. Well, and as coaches, so not just in training roles. So let's move on and talk a little bit about how you can recognize responses and provoke learning through different roles that we commonly take. The first thing to think about is what are the signs that might suggest that provoking learning is going to be helpful? And we have six signs. When you see problematic patterns persisting, where attempted or usual solutions aren't really working, this might be a sign that's necessary. Other examples are when people complain about a situation, but they don't take action. But just be careful because complaints aren't always a sign that people want to help solve the issue. Sometimes complaints are just a way to vent or just a way to express frustration. So I notice when certain points of view aren't being considered, whether that's, you know, passively or actively, that they're being overlooked. So that's often a signal to me that there's an opportunity for people to explore this and learn something. If I see that there are subgroups forming that are holding on to perceptions or opinions, that's another situation where I might try to provoke some learning. 
And if I see people are just not being very curious about what's going on with their process or the way they're working or the way their work fits into the organization, that might be another opportunity where I'd look to generate some learning. When I see people who are applying a model that fits in one domain, but they're trying to kind of shoehorn it into another domain, that might be another time when I would try to provoke some learning. Like when people are trying to plan for a very complex software project as if it were, a, you know, building a garage in their backyard, which are, you know, dramatically different levels of complexity and risk and unknowns involved. So that's another time I might try to provoke some learning. So how can we provoke learning in the different stances? So I think if you're in a reflective observer stance, meaning you're gathering observations or information about the system, maybe through being there and being observant or through a more formal study, you can provoke learning in the way you present your findings and the way you guide people to explore them. If you're taking the role of a facilitator, or you can help a group, you can provoke learning by providing a process that allows them to explore different points of views. You might facilitate openness and ask other people what they interpreted other people say. So you're trying to facilitate empathy. Yeah, and the acknowledgement that there are multiple points of view and that the same event can look very different depending on where you sit in the organization or what your background is. So I think coaches have lots of opportunities to provoke learning through reframing a situation. If people are talking about it in a particular way, if you can help them see it slightly differently. So if I hear people talking about people in a very negative way, I sometimes ask them to try to reframe that to neutral. So you're saying this person is stuck in their ways and resistant to change. What might be useful about that? Right. What might be useful could be that there brings stability in certain situations where it's necessary. So reframing or broadening the frame by asking people to look at it from a different point of view or to expand their thinking about it in some way. I love that exercise. And I've attended a couple of your workshops where I've been a part of that. And there are so many aha moments with the participants in that particular group when they start seeing a situation from a different point of view, like when they themselves reframe the situation. So it's not you as the coach reframing their situation. It's them themselves having the tools to reframe their own situation. That's an amazing exercise. As partners, we also start taking a little bit more responsibility for the results. So we are both interested in the improvement, but also the results. And if you're partnering with someone and you're seeing these signs, it might be really good and helpful to just put up your different views of a situation on the whiteboard. Just like, let's just look at the different situations and see, you know, what are we bringing to the table? How are we interpreting this? What sense are we making? And let's maybe create a shared model of making sense of this. So modeling is another way that you can provoke learning. And in this sense, in some ways, you are creating a situation intentionally by modeling something that people have not viewed as possible or within the realm of their possibilities. So for example, I was teaching a three-day workshop several years ago and somebody showed up halfway through the second day and asked to join the workshop. And I said, we'd love to have you at the next one, but you know, you've missed a day and a half and it's not fair to the other people to spend time trying to, you know, catch things up and you will be at sea. You won't know what the context is because a lot of that was said on the first day. 
And that was a company where people just came and went from meetings and trainings all the time. So that was like a revolutionary thought to the people in that room that you could actually say, no, you cannot disrupt this three-day training by arriving midway through the second day and expect us to accommodate catching you up. So just modeling and then talking about what happened, what you did or why you did it is another way to provoke learning. Awesome. The last stance we want to talk about is that of a trainer, which is a role that a lot of engineering managers and coaches take on. And here, it's really important to design exercises that allow for exploration. So that means not giving a didactic lecture of like, here are five things you need to remember, and here's a practical way you can remember it with this acronym. That's not designing for exploration. That's designing for potentially remembering yeah, or designing exercises for which there is one right answer. I remember someone who designed an exercise to learn about testing. So he gave this code to test and kept finding bugs. And he'd say, not that bug. That's not the one you're supposed to find. <laughs> so, so he could have learned a lot about his code and his training by the vast number of bugs that people found. Instead, he probably learned something else about his interaction with this trainer. <sighs> yeah. All right, so let's wrap it up. Learning is the generation of new knowledge. It's not just reading a book or going to a training session. It is really about generating new knowledge, not necessarily having it handed to you so you can parrot it back. Provocation is a change in the environment that invites exploration. It invites experimentation and examination. And that change can be something that you construct, that you design, or it can be something that you just notice, here's an opportunity for us to really explore something. And that's really that step. We have the experience and then we explore it. And once people start exploring, they can respond either with assimilation, fitting it into their old way of thinking, or accommodation, which is incorporating the new concepts. And we don't expect that to happen instantly. It's often a process that takes place over time, and people can kind of flop between those for a while. Like, oh, I get object-oriented programming. No, I don't get it. You know? So anytime you're learning a new concept like that. And as coaches, we need to facilitate learning. And the way we design training and really just how we invite learning in any setting is greatly going to impact the learner's response, meaning we have an impact on whether people respond with assimilation or accommodation. And we have an impact on how people learn in a purposeful way. Which also impacts people's relationship with each other in the organization. Absolutely. That's it for this time. We look forward to talking more about learning in organizations in the next coming episodes. So tune in in a couple of weeks for the next episode. All right. See you later. Bye.